Chapter Three of Nothing of Importance by Bernard Adams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Working Parties Fall in the Brick Party! The six privates awoke from a state of inert dreaming, or lolling against the barn that flanked the gateway of battalion headquarters, to stand in two rows of three and await orders. At last the ASC lorry had turned up an hour late, and while it turned round I dispatched one of the privates to our transport to get six sandbags. By the time he returned the lorry had performed its about-wheel, and all aboard, myself in front and the six behind, we are off for C. We pass through Bethune. As we approach through the suburbs, we rattle past motor dispatch riders, ASC lorries, Red Cross carts, columns of transport horses being exercised, officers on horseback, officers in motor-cars, small unarmed fatigue parties, battalions on the march. Then there are carts carrying bricks, French postmen on bicycles, French navvies in blue uniforms repairing the road, innumerable peasant traps, coal-wagons, women with baskets, and children of course everywhere. Business as usual, yet, but for a line of men not so many miles away, the place would be a desolate ruin like the towns and villages that chance has doomed to be in the firing line. So I moralize, not so the Tommies, sprawling behind, inside the lorry, and caring not a jot for anything save that they are on a cushy or soft job, as the rest of the battalion are doing four hours digging under R.E. supervision. A good thing to be a Tommy, to be told to fall in here or there, and not to know whether it is for a bayonet charge or a job of carting earth. Bang! 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 We are nearing the firing line, having left Bethune, where military police stand at every corner directing the traffic with flags, one road up, another down. We are once more within the noisy but invisible chain of batteries. Lorries, six miles per hour. The shell-holes in the road, roughly filled with stones, would make quicker going impossible anyhow. We are entering C, and I keep an eagle eye open for ruined houses, and soon stop by a house with two walls and half a roof. Out come the six Tommies, and proceed to fill a sandbag each with bricks, and empty it into the lorry. The supply is inexhaustible, and in half an hour the A.S.C. corporal refuses to take more, declaring we have the regulation three-ton load, so I stop work and prepare to depart. The corporal, however, has heard of a sister lorry nearby, which has unfortunately slipped into a ditch and, so to speak, sprained its ankle. Though extraordinarily unromantic in appearance, the corporal shows himself imbued with a spirit of knight-errantry, and, having obtained my permission to rescue the fair damsel, sets off for what he declares cannot take more than ten minutes. As I thought the process would take probably more like twenty minutes, I let the men repair to a house on the opposite side of the road, where was a rather more undamaged piece of roof than usual. It was now raining, and myself explored the place I happened to be in. Occasionally, at home, one comes across a deserted cottage in the country. A most desolate spirit pervades the place. 
Imagine, then, what it is like in these villages half a mile or a mile behind what has become the firing line for now twelve months. A few steps off the main road brought me into what had formerly been a small garden belonging to a farm. There had been a red brick wall all along the north side, with fruit trees trained along it. Now the wall was mostly a rubble heap, and the fruit trees dead. One sickly pear tree struggled to exist in a crumbled sort of heap, but its wilted leaves only added to the desolation of the scene. An iron gate, between red brick pillars, was still standing, strangely enough. But the little lawn was run to waste, and had a crater in the middle of it, about five feet across, inside of which was some disintegrating animal, also empty tins and other refuse. Trees were broken, weeds were everywhere. I tried to reconstruct the place in my imagination, but it was a chaotic tangle. I came across a few belated raspberries, and picked one or two. They were tasteless and watery. Rubbish and broken glass were strewn everywhere. It was a dreary sight in the grey rain, the only sign of life a few chattering blue tits. The house was an utter ruin, only a ground-room wall left standing. Some of the outhouses had not suffered so much, but all the roofs were gone. I saw a rusty mangle staring forlornly out of a heap of debris, and a manger and hay-rack showed what had been a stable. The pond was just near, too, and gradually I could piece together the various elements of the farm. Who the owners were I vaguely wondered. Perhaps they will return after the war. But I doubt if they could make much of the old ruins. These villages will most likely remain a blighted area for years, like the villages reclaimed by the jungle. Already the Virginia creeper and woodbine are trying to cover the ugliness. The Tommies, meanwhile, had been smoking gold flakes, and one or two had also been exploring. One had discovered a child's elementary botany book, and was studying the illustrations when I came up. Our combined view, now, was, where is the lorry? And this view held the field, with increasing curiosity, annoyance, and vituperation, for one solid hour and a half. It was dinner-time, and a common bond of hunger held us, until at last, in exasperation, I marched half the party in quest of our errant conveyance. I was thoroughly annoyed with the gallant corporal. Three-quarters of a mile away I found the two lorries. My little corporal had rescued his lorn princess, but she, being a buxom wench, had brought her rescuer into like predicament and so we came up just in time to see the rescue of our lorry from the treacherous ditch. I felt I could not curse, especially as the little corporal had winded himself somehow in the stomach during the last bout. It had been a feeble show, yet there was the lorry, and in it the bricks, onto which the fellows climbed deliberately as men who recover a lost prize. And so we arrived at our transport, the bricks were for a horse-stand in a muddy yard, at half-past two, after which I dismissed the party to its belated dinner. The above incident hardly deserves a place in a chapter headed Working Parties, being in almost every respect different from any other I have ever conducted. I think the Working Party is realized less than anything else in this war by those who have not been at the front. It does not appeal to the imagination, 
Yet it is essential to realize, if one wants to know what this war is like, the amount of sheer dogged labor performed by the infantry in digging, draining, and improving trenches. The working party usually consists of seventy to a hundred men from a company, with either one or two officers. The brigadier going round the trenches finds a communication trench falling in, and about a foot of mud at the bottom. Get a working party onto this at once, he says to his staff captain. The staff captain consults one of the R.E. officers, and a note is sent to the adjutant of one of the two battalions in billets. Your battalion will provide a working party of blank officers, blank full ranks, sergeants and corporals, and blank other ranks tomorrow. Report to Lieutenant blank, R.E. at blank at 5 p.m. tomorrow for work on blank trench. Tools will be provided. The staff captain then dismisses the matter from his head. The adjutant then sends the same note to one or more of the four company commanders, detailing the number of men to be sent by the companies specified by him. He is scrupulously careful to divide work equally between the companies, by the way. The company commander, on receiving the note, curses volubly, declares it a damned shame the hardest-worked battalion in the brigade can't be allowed a moment's rest, feels sure the men will mutiny one of these days, etc., summons the orderly, who is frousting in the next room with the officer's servants, and says, Take this to the sergeant-major, after scribbling on the note, parade outside Company HQ, 3.30 p.m., and adding, as the orderly departs, might tell the quartermaster sergeant I want to see him. Meanwhile, the three subalterns are extraordinarily engrossed in their various occupations, until the company commander boldly states that it is rotten luck, but he supposes as so-and-so took the last, it is so-and-so's turn, isn't it? And details the officers. If they are new officers, he tells them the sergeants will know exactly what to do, and if they are old hands, he tells them nothing whatever. The quarter, company quarter master sergeant, then arrives, and is told the party will not be back, probably, till 10 p.m., and will he make sure, please, that hot soup is ready for the men on return, and also dry socks, if it turns out wet. He is then given a drink, and the company commander's work is finished. Meanwhile the company sergeant-major has received the orders from the orderly, and summons unto him the orderly sergeant, and from his roster, or roll, ticks off the men and NCOs to be warned for the working party. This the orderly sergeant does by going round to the various barns and personally reading out each man's name, and on getting the answer saying, You're for the working party, 3.15 today. The exact nature of the remarks when he is gone are beyond my province. Only, as an officer taking the party, one knows that at 3.25 p.m. the senior sergeant calls the two lines of waiting other ranks to attention, and with a slap on his rifle announces, Working party present, sir, as you stroll up. Working parties are dressed in musketry order, usually, that is to say, with equipment, but no packs rifles and ammunition, of course, and waterproof sheets rolled and fastened to the webbing belt. The officer then tells the sergeant to stand them easy, 
while he asks one or two questions, and looks once more at orders which the senior sergeant has probably brought on parade, and at three-thirty, with a company shun, slope, hip, right in fours, form fours, right, by the right, quick march, leads off his party, giving march at ease, march easy, almost in one breath, as soon as he rounds the corner. Then there is a hitching of rifles to the favourite position, and a buzz of remarks and whistles and song behind, while the sergeant edges up to the officer, or the officer edges back to the sergeant, according to their degree of intimacy, and the working party is on its way. One working party I remember very well. We were in billets at blank, and really tired out. It was November 6th, and on looking up my letters I find our movements for the last week had been as follows. October 29th, 9 a.m., moved off from billets, 12 midday, lunch, 3 p.m., arrived in front trenches, October 30th, front trenches, October 31st, front trenches, November 1st, relieved at 3 p.m., the Devons were very late relieving us, owing to bad rain and mud, 5.30 p.m., reached billets, November 2nd, rain all day, morning spent by men in trying to clean up, afternoon, baths. November 3rd, 9 a.m., started off for trenches again, it had rained incessantly, mud terrible. 1 p.m., arrived in front trenches. November 4th, front trenches rained all day. November 5th, 2.30 p.m., relieved late again. Mud colossal, billets 5 p.m. November 6th, morning, clean-up inspection by C.O. Afternoon, sudden and unexpected working party, 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. Yet I thoroughly enjoyed those eight hours, I remember. There were, I suppose, about eighty N.C.O.s and men from B Company. I was in charge, with one other officer. We halted at a place whither the cooker had been previously dispatched, and where the men had their tea. Luckily, it was fine. The men sat about on lumps of trench boards and coils of barbed wire, for the place was an R.E. dump, where a large accumulation of R.E. stores of all description was to be found. I apologized to the R.E. officer for keeping him a few minutes while the men finished their tea. He, however, a second lieutenant, was in no hurry whatever, it seemed, and waited about a quarter of an hour for us. Then I fell the men in, and then they drew tools, so many men a pick, so many a shovel, the usual proportion is one pick, two shovels, and we splodged along through whitish clay of the stickiest calibre in the gathering twilight. An R.E. corporal and two R.E. privates had joined us mysteriously by now, as well as the second lieutenant, and crossing H Street, we plunged down into a communication trench, and started the long mazy grope. The R.E. corporal was guide. The trench was all paved with trench mats, but these were not laid, only shoved down anyhow. Consequently they wobbled, and one's boot slipped off the side into squelch, rubbing the ankle. Continually came up the message from behind, "'Lost touch, sir!' This involved a wait, one, two minutes, until the "'All up!' or all in came up one hears it coming in a hoarse whisper and starts before it actually arrives infinite patience is necessary r e officers are sometimes eager to go ahead but once lose the last ten men at night in an unknown trench 
and it may take three hours to find them. The other officer was bringing up the rear. At last we reached our destination, and the R.E. officer and myself told the men to work along the trench. This particular work was clearing what is known as a berm, that is, the flat strip of ground between the edge of the trench and the thrown-up earth, each side of a CT, communication trench. When a trench is first dug, the earth is thrown up each side. The recent rains were, however, causing the trenches to crumble in everywhere, and the weight of the thrown-up earth was especially the cause of this. Consequently, if the earth were cleared away, a yard on each side of the trench, and thrown further back, the trench would probably be saved from falling in to any serious extent, and the light labour of shoveling dry earth a yard or so back would be substituted for the heart-breaking toil of throwing sloppy mud or sticky clay out of a trench higher than yourself. The work to be done had been explained to the sergeants before we left our starting point. As we went along, the R.E. officer told off men at ten or five yards interval, according to the amount of earth to be moved. Each man stopped when told off, and the rest of the men passed him. Sergeants and corporals stopped with their section or platoon, and got the men started as soon as the last man of the company had passed. At last up came the last man, sergeant, and the other officer, and together we went back all along. The men were on top, that is why the working party was a night one. Sometimes they had not understood their orders and were doing something wrong. A slack sergeant would then probably have to be routed out and told off. The men worked like fun, of course, it being known, to everyone's joy, that this was a peace job, and that we went home as soon as it was finished. There was absolute silence, except the sound of falling earth, and an occasional chink of iron against stone or a swish, and muttered cursings, as a bit of trench fell in with a slide, dragging a man with it, for it is not always easy to clear a yard-wide berm without crumbling the trench-edge in. One would not think these men were worn out, to see them working as no other men in the world can work, for nearly every man was a miner. The novice will do only half the work a trained miner will do, with the same effort. Sometimes I was appealed to as to the yard. Was this wide enough? One man had had an unlucky bit given him with a lot of extra earth from a dugout thrown on to the original lot. So I redivided the task. It is amazing the way the time passes while going along a line of workers, noticing, talking, correcting, praising. By the time I got to the first men of the company, they were halfway through the task. At last the job was finished. As many men as space allowed were put on to help one section that somehow was behind. Whether it was bad luck in distribution or slack work no one knew or cared. The work must be finished. The men wanted to smoke, but I would not let them. It was too near the front trenches. And then I did a foolish thing which might have been disastrous. The R.E. corporal had remained, though the officer had left long ago. The corporal was to act as guide back, and this he was quite ready to do if I was not quite sure of the way. I, however, felt sure of it, and as the corporal would be saved a long tramp if he could go off to his dugout direct without coming with us, I foolishly said I had no need of him, and let him go. I then lost my way completely. We had never been in that section before, 
and none of the sergeants knew it. We had come from the R.E. dump, and thither we must return, leaving our tools on the way. But I had been told to take the men to the divisional soup kitchen first, which was about four hundred yards north of X, the spot where we entered the C.T., and which I was trying to find. For all I knew, I was going miles in the wrong direction. My only guide was the flares behind, which assured me I was not walking to the Germans, but away from them. The unknown trenches began to excite among the sergeants the suspicion that all was not well. But I took the most colossal risk of stating that I knew perfectly well what I was doing, and strode on ahead. There was silence behind after that, save for splashings and splodgings. My heart misgave me that I was coming to undrained trenches of the worst description, or to waterlogged impasses. Still I strode on, or waited interminable waits for the all-up sign. At last we reached houses, grim and black, new and awfully unknown. I nearly tumbled down a cellar as a sentry challenged. I was preparing for humble questions as to where we were, the nearest way to X, and a possible joke to the sergeant. This joke had not materialized, and seemed unlikely to be of the easiest. When I recovered myself from the cellar, mounted some steps, I found myself on a road beside a group of Tommies emerging from the soup kitchen. My star, the only one visible, I believe, that inky night, had led me there direct. I said nothing, as everyone warmed up in spirits as well as bodies with that excellent soup and no one ever knew of the quailings of my heart along those unknown trenches. To lead men wrong is always bad, but when they are tired out it is unpardonable, and not quickly forgotten. As it was, canteens were soon brimming with thick vegetable soup, filled from a bubbling cauldron with a mighty ladle. In the hot room men glistened and perspired, while a regular steam arose from muddied boots and putties. Every one, from officer to latest joined private, was sipping with dangerous avidity the boiling fluid. Many charges have been laid against divisional staffs, but never a complaint have I heard against a soup kitchen. So in good spirits we tramped along, and dumped our tools in the place where we had found them. Clank, 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 as spade fell on spade. Then, you may smoke, was passed down. The sergeant reported, "'All correct, sir,' and we tramped along in file. Soon the bursts of song were swallowed up in a great whistling concert, and we were all merry. The fit passed, and there was silence. Then came the singing again, which developed into hymns, and that took us into our billets. Here we were greeted with the most abominable news of reveille at five a.m., but I think most of the men were too sleepy to hear it. We two officers deplored our fate while eating a supper set out for us in a greenhouse, our temporary mess-room. That is a working party, interesting as a first experience to an officer. But when multiplied exceedingly, by day, by night, in rain, mud, sleet and snow, carrying trench-boards, filling sandbags, digging clay, bailing out liquid mud, and returning cold and drenched, without soup, then, working parties became a monotonous succession of discomforts that wore out the spirit as well as the body. The last six nights before the promised rest were spent in working parties at Festubert. 
There the ground was low and wet, and it was decided to build a line of breastwork trenches a few hundred yards behind the existing line, so that we could retire on to dry ground in case of getting swamped out. For six nights in succession we left billets at 10 p.m. and returned by 4 a.m. The weather was the coldest, it turned out eventually, that winter. It started with snow, then followed hard frost for four nights, and, last but not least, a thaw and incessant sleet and rain. I have never before experienced such cold, but, on the other hand, I have never before had to stand about all night in a severe frost. It was actually, I believe, from ten to fifteen degrees below freezing point. At two a.m. the stars would glitter with relentless mirth, as the cold pierced through two cardigans and a sheepskin waistcoat. I have skated at night, but always to return by midnight to fire and bed. Bed. At home people were sleeping as comfortably as usual, a few extra blankets perhaps, or more coals in the grate. I was out five nights of the six. Captain Dixon was on leave, so we only had three officers in B, and two had to go every night. Every night at nine-thirty the company would be fallen in and marched off to the rendezvous, there, at ten, to join the rest of the battalion. There was no singing, very little talking. In parts the road was very bad, and we marched in file. The road was full of shell-holes, and bad generally. The ice crackled and tinkled in the ruts and puddles. The frozen mud inclined you to stumble over its ridges and bumps. It took us the best part of an hour to reach our destination. The first night we must have gone earlier than the other nights, as I distinctly remember viewing by daylight those most amazing ruins. There was a barrier across the road just before you entered the village. Just opposite were the few standing fragments of the church, bits of wall and mullion here and there, and all around tombstones leaning in every direction, rooted up, shattered, split. There was one of the crucifixes standing untouched in the middle of it all, about which so much has been written. Whether it had fallen and had been erected again I cannot say. The houses were more smashed, crumbled, and chaotic than even Quenchy or Givenchy. I remember that corner very vividly, because at that spot came one of the few occasions on which I had the wind up a little. Why, I know not. We were halted a few moments, when two whiz-bangs shot suddenly into a garden about twenty yards to our right, with a vicious vee-boom, vee-boom. We moved on, and just as we got round the corner I saw two flashes on my left, then two more shells hissed right over us and fell with the same stinging snarl into the same spot, just twenty yards over us this time. I was, luckily, marching at the rear of the company at the time, as I ducked and almost sprawled in alarm. For the next minute or two I was all quivery. I am glad to know what it feels like, as I have never experienced since, such an abject windiness. I believe it was mainly due to being so exposed on the hard, hedgeless road. Or, perhaps, that last pair did actually go particularly near me. At any rate, such was my experience, and so I record it. At the entrance to the communication trench, R.E. officers told us, 
A Company, Carrying Party, B Company to draw shovels and picks and follow me. Then we started off along about a mile and a half of communication trenches. I have already said that Festubert is a very wet district, and it can easily be imagined that the drainage problem is none of the easiest. This long communication trench had been mastered by trench mats fastened down on long pickets, which were driven deep down into the mud. The result was that the trench floor was raised about two feet from the original bottom, and one walked along a hollow-sounding platform over stagnant water. The sound reminded me of walking along a wooden landing stage off the end of a pier. Every few hundred yards were passing points, presumably to facilitate passing other troops coming in the other direction. But as I never had the good fortune to meet the other troops at these particular spots, though I did in many others, I cannot say they were particularly useful. Another disadvantage about these waterlogged trenches was that the bad rains had made the water rise in several places even over the raised trench-board platform. Others were fastened on top, but even these were often not enough. And when the frost came and froze the water on top of the boards, the procession became a veritable cakewalk, humorous, no doubt, to the stars and sky, but to the performers feeling their way in the thick darkness and ever slipping and plunging a boot and putty into the ice-water at the side, a nightmare of painful and jarring experiences. There was one junction of trenches where one had to cross a dike full of half-frozen water. There was always a congestion of troops here, ration parties, relieving parties, and ourselves. All relieving had to be done at night as the trenches with their artificially raised floors were no longer deep enough to give cover from view. This crossing had to be negotiated in a most gingerly fashion, and several men got wet to their waists when compelled to cross while carrying an awkward-shaped hurdle. After this the trench was worse than ever. In parts it was built with fire-steps on one side, and one could scramble on to this and proceed on the dry for a while but even here the slippery sandbags would often treacherously slide you back into the worst part of the iced platform, and so gave but a doubtful advantage. At last the open was gained, then came the crossing of the old German trench, full of all kinds of grim relics from the spring fighting. And so to our destination. On the open ground lay a tracing of white tape forming a serpentine series of contacting squares. In the blackness only two white-bordered squares were visible from one position. Each man was given a square to dig. I forget the measurements, about two yards square, I think, and two feet deep. The earth had to be thrown about eight yards back against a breastwork of hurdles. These hurdles were being brought up by the carrying parties, and fastened by wires by the R.E.s. The R.E. officers had, of course, laid our white tapes for us previously. Eventually the sentries will stand behind the hurdle breastwork with a water-ditch ten yards in front of them, which obstacle will be suitably enhanced by strong wire entanglements. But all this vision of completion is hidden from the eyes of Private Jones, who only knows he has his white-taped square to dig. Arms and equipment are laid carefully on the side of the trench furthest from the breastwork and nothing can be heard but the hard breathing and the shoveling and scraping of the other ranks. For two hours 
those men worked their hardest. Indeed, it was much the best job to have on those cold nights. I did more digging then than I have ever done before or since. Come on, Davies, you're all behind and for ten minutes I would do an abnormal amount of shoveling, until, out of breath, I would hand the boy back his shovel and tell him to carry on, while all aglow I went along the line examining the progress of the work. We had quite a number of bullets singing and crackling across, and there were one or two casualties every night. Sometimes flares would pop over, and every one would freeze into static posture, but on the whole things were very quiet the enemy doubtless as full of water as ourselves. That intense cold! Yet I did not know then that it is far worse being on sentry in the frost than marching and digging, and I am not sure that the last night, when it rained incessantly, was not worse than all the rest. We had a particularly bad piece of ground that night, pitted with shell-holes full of frozen water. You were bound to fall in one at last, and get wet to the waist, but even if you did escape that sticky humiliation, the driving sleet and rain were bad enough in themselves. That was a night when I found certain sergeants sheltered together in a corner, and certain other sergeants in the middle of their men and the howling gale. I soon routed the former out, but did not forget and have since discovered how valuable a test of the good and the useless NCO is of working party in the rain. Never have I longed for 2 a.m. as I did that night. My feet were wet, my body tired, my whole frame shivering with an approaching cold. The men could do nothing any longer in that stinking slush, for these old shell-holes of stagnant water were, to say the least of it, unsavoury. I was so heavy with sleep I could scarce keep my eyes open. But when at last the order came from our second-in-command, Cease work! I was filled with a dogged energy that carried me back to billets in the best of spirits, though I actually fell asleep as I marched behind the company, and bumped into the last four when they halted suddenly halfway home. And so at four o'clock the men tumbled upstairs to breakfast and braziers, thanks to a good quartermaster sergeant. I drank Bovril down below, and then, in pyjamas, sweaters, and innumerable blankets, turned in till eleven a.m. Next afternoon we left Rue d'Epinette, and halted at a village on the road to Lillers, whence we were to train to a more northern part of the line, and enjoy at last our long-earned rest. End of chapter 3